Method to the Madness is next. Listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley, celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer King. She's the Director of Consumer Privacy at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School. We'll be talking about the problems with social media today. program, Jennifer. Thank you. You've recently gotten a new job at Stanford Law School. Can you first of all tell us what you're doing down there? Yes. So I just graduated my PhD back here at Berkeley. In what? Uh, Information science. And at Stanford, I am the director of consumer privacy at the the Center for Law and Society at Stanford Law School. You You just started, though? At Stanford, yes. I started in April before I graduated. Okay. Last week, I had an interesting conversation with Jaron Lanier, who just wrote a book called 10 Arguments to Delete Your Social Media Accounts right now. And I thought I'd have you on the show to talk about some of the ideas that we talked about, since that is your area. Mm-hmm. Everybody kind of knows there's, there's something wrong right now in our society. You know, journalism is failing. Politics is failing. People are afraid they're losing their jobs to AI, whether they right. are or not. They're afraid of it. So there's a lot of social anxiety. What do you see as the problem with social media, or do you? <laughs> with social media specifically, because uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges with social media is that it de-individuates us, or it kind of takes us away from our humanity to some extent. You know, it's the same way when you're driving in a car, and there's that object between you and the rest of the world, and you might be a totally reasonable person in real life, and then you get behind the wheel and you get road rage, or you know, you just find that you kind of treat people more like objects than other people. When you communicate with people through a computer, it's that same object between you and them. And I think it prevents us in some ways from connecting with people. There's a lot of research now that um, backs up, especially with young people, that there right. is more anxiety, there's more sadness. I don't know exactly how they're measuring sadness, but that people are acting out differently, particularly young people, mm-hmm. and, which is kind of scary. So I think we need to re-examine these, like Google and Facebook and others. Mm-hmm. Some aren't in the business of behavior modification, but the model, the business model, it's not that the, the people behind it personally are doing this, but the business model they've created with machine language literally takes us on a downward path. You know, it's not left or right. It's actually down because the algorithms support and make money off of negative emotions. Sure. I mean, I've worked in Silicon Valley, and I can tell you having been— Who did you work for? I worked for Yahoo. I worked for other startups, too, but I worked for Yahoo um, back in the early 2000s and was part of not directly developing social media software, but was part of that scene, you could call it, um, in the Bay Area back around 2000 plus, uh, where I was part of those social networks that emerged during that time. And, you know, I think we were all very optimistic. And there wasn't a lot of thought about kind of what the consequences were of any of these things people made. It was mostly like, let's just try this and see what happens. And I think there was at first, you know, there was an optimism driving it. 
a, you know, we're doing this because let's see what happens. It could be really interesting. And I think that's shifted, you know, it shifted over time from that to let's do this and maybe we'll get acquired by somebody to now let's do this and see how much personal data we can potentially mine from this product and from these people using it. So, you know, part of that's the consequence of building this entire infrastructure off the idea that it's free um, and not making people pay for it. Um, I think the other piece of it, too, is that most of the people in this space, I would argue, were not thinking about what these products would do or these services would do to kids. And, you know, it's one thing, it was one thing to put a lot of this in the hands of people who already had a solid footing on what it meant to talk to people in reality. (laughs) You know, we didn't grow up with phones and we barely grew up with computers, many of us. And so we had a foundation for what it meant to interact with people. And now suddenly you have kids who've, you know, grown up immersed in this technology and it's shifted to where it's almost as if they don't know how to interact with each other. Right. It's a big intermediary for them. Yeah. Professor Sherry Turkle has written extensively on this and I think she's done some of the best research on it. She's at MIT. And she's published several books kind of in this area, and that's where I'm drawing some of my own insight. Um, it's kind of an unfortunate collision of math and human biology. Yeah, and I, I would say, too, part of the challenge is that being a technologist has suddenly brought with it a lot of power in the society, and we don't educate technologists to think about other people. You know, if you are a Berkeley or a Stanford computer science student, for the most part, I don't believe you even had to take any ethics requirements in the past. I know that's changing. But you've been able to kind of tinker with this giant social experiment without necessarily having any you know, education or training or you know, having been challenged to really think about the consequences of your actions on other people. It's mostly just been a chase to see what cool thing can we make next. And I think there's, we're seeing the consequences of that. We are, and there seems to be a groundswell now of people, at least researchers, academicians, economists, who are now looking at all of this behavior modification and the implications. And they're also looking at data as labor instead of data as capital. Mm-hmm. Because for the first time ever, I think there are just a few people who who own these big, what Jaron Lanier calls siren servers, and they're making money on everybody else. There's only one buyer and multiple sellers of information, so it's a monopsony. Yes, a very hard word to say. <laughs> yes. I want to talk about that, all of the data that's been pulled from us with our knowledge and without our knowledge. That's a tough one um, because from my perspective, you know, I – study privacy and I study people and I try to understand kind of how information privacy, how people think about it, what they care about. And I'm willing to bet that most of us have figurative piles of digital photos hanging out in our either on our personal computers, on our phones. And managing all those things is really hard. I don't think I don't think I know anybody who actually has a grip on like the number of photos they take. And I, I think don't even you can look at them anymore. Right. And I think you can extend that to your own data. You know, we talk about a lot about we want to give people more control and we want to put them in control. And, they, you know, if we could just somehow get our hands on this, you know, ephemeral data, then it will be OK. My skepticism with that just comes from the fact that it's it's such an information overload that um, it's possible we could build an infrastructure that makes it easy for people or at least easier. But right now, I think the push to get people's hands on the data isn't going to necessarily have the effect we want it to or that we might be hoping it will. I think there are good reasons for making the companies open up their platforms that have to do with issues of power and and control and just trying to kind of force a level of openness that doesn't exist presently. But whether that ends up with empowering people individually because they 
you know, can actually see what data is collected about them. I'm a little bit skeptical of that, actually. Well, what about data? Um, you know, people talk about universal basic income, mm-hmm. but um, now people are talking about, you know, you've gotten these companies rich off of all of this data. Right. And um, with with your consent, you've given this away. But now, kind of are, your consent. Yeah, there are people, <laughs> groups like DataVest and researchers, even at Stanford, that are looking at the idea of monetizing your data, so that you know, in place of a universal basic income, someday you might get every month a certain amount of money in return for the barter that you've given away your private life. So not to wallow in trendy technologies right now, but I think we've. I don't know if your listeners or if you've talked much about blockchain. Oh, yeah. I've had people on here, actually, yeah. I mean, from the UC Berkeley blockchain group. Yeah. <laughs> oh, great. So I don't know if blockchain is the answer to that problem, but it seemingly could potentially be an answer to the data management piece. Every proposal I've seen in this vein has, A, put a lot of – put the burden on the individual to manage it in a way that I don't think most people want to do. I mean, you just, you know, you can't manage your photos. You don't also probably want to manage your personal data on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I don't exactly. even, I don't even balance my checking account anymore. <laughs> like I just, right. where what has to give? And I, I have to say, I don't know too much about the kind of blockchain proposal and in insofar as I have seen it voiced as a potential solution for this distributed data management problem. It seems to me that if Facebook and Google were smart, they would get off this business model that's on a downward anyway because it's going to implode. You can't take data as capital forever. So if they would say, okay, we realize what we're doing, and now we're going to turn around and give you back something, they'll probably never do that because their business model, they make too much money. But there are groups like DataVest. They they propose a co-op organization where they are the intermediary between the, you know, the big computer monsters that they're leasing to do this kind mm-hmm. of complex mathematical, but blockchain would be part of that probably, you know, keeping accounting records. and complex. Right. And making it manageable for end users, for individuals. So I think that the challenge is that right now, in some ways, collecting data is more valuable than it potentially has been before because companies are using this to feed their AI systems. I mean, it's a big training base. And given how much focus right now is on AI and improving those systems, I mean, as an information scientist, I can tell you that, you know, you need data <laughs> to train those systems to make, to improve them. Um, like like uh, language translation. You need real people. I mean, they're grabbing real people's translations in order to make the yes. you know Google Translate right. work better. Which I think is actually a really excellent example of this being used for good in a sense. It is, but what about the jobs of human translators? Well, some at some point, you know, there's really no artificial intelligence right now, but at some point when perhaps there is, they won't have a job anymore. Well, I don't know if it necessarily obviates all human translators, but I, you know, I will tell you I was in Mexico last year and, you know, I wasn't going to hire a translator to go with me from, you know, place to place to place, but it, Google Translate was really helpful <laughs> for yes. trying to talk so, to a cab driver because so my Spanish we, is terrible. I agree with you there, but let's pay those human translators for that data. Sure. Yeah. So just to go back to that thought, though, that one of the reasons why I don't think you'll see the recognition by the companies that this could be a downward slope right now is because right now, as they're trying to improve their consumer AI systems, there is a, you know, probably fanatical need or desire for as much data as you can get. Given that, I think if you want to see the changes you're talking about, it will probably emerge through civil society and other groups putting together, you know, proposals and kind of pushing it. And I think you'll have to see it from a government side, ultimately. 
I don't know if you'll see it in this country. There does have to be some oversight. I don't know. I feel like this problem is so urgent right now. When you look at, you know, the Annapolis shootings, which some mm-hmm. people are saying, you know, were triggered by trolls online and and that could be misinformation. It's hard to find the truth. That is hurting our society. And, and, and also with journalism, I use that as an example a lot because, you know, they kind of miss the Trump election. They miss the recent Brooklyn, um, the young woman who beat out the stronghold Democrat challenger. Mm-hmm. That was completely missed by me. You know, what's going on there? They can't afford investigative journalists. Most, most organizations can't anymore. So finding out the truth is, is really difficult. I think that's changing us in so many ways. It's, it's making us more siloed. We don't know what red states are thinking because we only see what the algorithms want us to see. So it's creating this bifurcated society. In fact, you know, it turns out a lot of technologists send their kids to Waldorf schools and Montessori schools right. because they're worried about this. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't let my kids use a lot of technology. <laughs> and, okay, so that why? Those... Well, I guess to go kind of go back full circle to the social media piece. Again, I think using social media is a different experience for those of us who've developed the skill of interpersonal communication and you know relationships in person. And that it's a you know much different equation when you're talking about kids. It used to be that the internet was a con- about connecting us across space, and now we're seeing it used in a very hyper local way. You know when it's used to connect people who are sitting right next to each other, and that's a very different vision I think than where we started from. And I don't think we've thought so much about what that means for the people kind of inhabiting that space together. And certainly with teenagers, you see it in terms of the competition it fosters for, you know, I want the best Instagram photo. I would say it's kind of a double, you know, two two big parts to it. One of it is, you know, parents having, you know, saying something. I mean, really being involved and understanding what their kids are doing, which I realize is not always easy, especially if you're not particularly tech literate. But, you know, I... I'm just, as a parent, I'm often often amazed how many small children I see who are just given phones and they just, you know, parents are ignoring them and they're just going on and on and on and on. <laughs> it just amazes me. And then, it, you know, there's definitely been greater calls to tech companies to really start thinking more about the implications of what they're doing, not only on this, but a lot of parts of, of their work across society. I think that the types of restrictions we have on phones, for example, are kind of in their infancy. I mean, we could do a lot more in terms of thinking through, like, what's what's an appropriate set of parental controls you can put on a phone, for example, to get a meter kids' usage so you can teach them, you know, bound it. Like, this is what it means to be on your phone for 20 minutes, and when the 20 minutes are up, like, you're done. <laughs> you're locked out. Um, they can get around that stuff, though. They're going to be so much more tech-savvy than you or I. I have younger kids, so I'm still They'll just kind hack of, your restrictions. <laughs> I'm still kind of biased towards the fact that I can take the yes. thing away from my five-year-old versus yeah. well, having a 15-year-old with a phone, which I realize is a different equation. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a bi-weekly public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating... Bay Area Innovators. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer King. She's the Director of Consumer Privacy at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School. Well, I wanted to ask you about, you you know, your new job in this at Stanford Law School. 
California just passed this pretty intense privacy data privacy law. It's le- it isn't as restrictive as Europe. Can you talk about that and explain what's going on uh, to our listeners? So the law that was just passed was the result of, we'll say, panic <laughs> by kind of the tech sector with the upcoming ballot initiative that was to appear on the ballot in November. There was a ballot initiative, or it was placed on the ballot, that would have had um, placed some more restrictions on privacy with respect to tech companies. And some of the provisions in the ballot measure ended up in this final bill, um, but not all of them. And when I looked at this bill, I am, again, I'm not a lawyer, so that's my disclaimer for my own analysis. But one of the things I actually was frustrated by, which I don't know if we'll see addressed ultimately, because a lot of the talk last week was around the fact that it doesn't go in to effect till 2020, so we may see amendments to it, um, was that it doesn't place li- any limits on the collection of data, nor on the, on the reselling of it. It was simply, I mean, it gives consumers a little bit more power than they had before. But I'm actually fairly um, disappointed with the outcome of that bill, because I don't think it really does much beyond allowing you to say, hey, don't sell my data. But a lot of the big companies that we've been concerned about actually aren't selling your data to begin with. They're no. collecting it, and they're selling access to it. And that doesn't change at all under this bill. And it doesn't curb some of the, I think, kind of worst, the worst cases we see of data being collected kind of without your explicit consent. It does nothing about that consent issue. If you download a free app for a smartphone and the app developer is using a third-party advertising service that serves ads in the app, um, that service is collecting data from your phone and about your usage as you're using it. The same with any website that you're not blocking kind of third-party cookies or third-party um, ad trackers on um, if you're using a regular computer and a browser. Those ad services are also collecting data from you or from your browser experience. And this bill doesn't really do anything to curb Does that. Does it do anything about the cameras on your phones and computers that are um, looking at your facial expressions and that goes into the machine language no algorithm as well. The listening that goes on with your devices. Yes, you have devices in your pocket that can listen to you and can take your picture. And certainly the way they get consent from you is often not clear, right? Most um, of the time you don't read the consent anyway on these sites yes. that you go to. However, it is against the law for them to be surveilling you without you having consented. At the same time, you might be using a service that wants to capture your voice as part of what it does. So take, you know, a smart speaker, for example. That's an area I've been looking at a bit lately. Like the Alexis and... Right. I mean, you know, they're voice activated. They need to listen to you, you know, for how long and what it records and, you know, the duration and what it does with that recording is an interesting question. But that is, that is the essence of a smart speaker. So you do have to let it capture your voice. It's just a question of then you know, what happens to that data. So in your capacity and your new job, what are you trying to, what are the problems you're trying to solve in the near term? My job is research focused. So part of it is about the type of research that I am looking to do. Um, and because I just graduated with my PhD, some of it's about publishing my own dissertation work. Which was on what? Privacy. <laughs> I don't think I want to go into the details. It's a, it's a long, complicated it's thing. <laughs> it's not private, but I think it's, it would bore a lot of people. Um, but some of the issues that I've been interested in exploring in this new role um, are genetic privacy. Actually, a part of my dissertation research was on 23andMe users. So I was very interested in looking at what they do with that 
information. Yeah, and also just people's expectations around it and what motivates them to you know have their DNA sequenced and you know what what happens to that to your DNA after you give it to a service like that. So that's an area I've been interested in looking at, um, as well as emotional privacy, because I think one of the things that's been a side effect of Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, um, and something I saw in my own work, is that people often get the most concerned about their privacy when it comes to data about them that really gets to who they think they are. And so by that, I mean, it's one thing for a credit reporting company to, you know, collect your address and your credit history. I mean, that's important information. And of course, we're upset if it gets breached. But your sense of privacy around it, I think, is different than, for example, another piece of my dissertation research was looking at people's uh, search queries. And one of the things I found was that actually, of the people I looked at, I asked these 23andMe users about their, their genetic data as compared to their search queries. And most of them were far more concerned about the content of their search queries and about their DNA. And that was mostly because they felt like their DNA, sure, it identifies you uniquely, but it didn't. they felt like it didn't tell people about them the way that if you looked at five years of your search queries, your unfiltered search queries, um, that could tell you much more about like who they are, what they're thinking about, what they care about. Oh, that's interesting. And maybe because, you know, search queries are free, but the 23andMe, you have to pay to join that service. I've done it, so I know you had, you know, there's a certain mm-hmm. fee. Mm-hmm. So with that fee structure, it, maybe that makes people think, oh, well, that data's private. It's not going to be. Oh, so, you know, the, the, the question of paying for it. Yes and no. Um, I mean, yes, it definitely, when people pay for something, what I've observed is that they, there are definitely more expectations around, you know, I paid Privacy. for this. So, you know, they better not sell my data, or at least they, I hope they won't. But with free services, there's also an expectation of privacy. It's not as if most people use something like Google search and assume that their search queries are going to be used in, you know, a multitude of different ways against them or, you know, released to the public. I mean, people had privacy expectations in that data, even if it was And that's important. To what talk Cambridge about. Analytica and Facebook has also shown us is the power of kind of the emotional data, which is something I'm also trying to focus on, because I think that's the next frontier. I mean, I think it's the next frontier in terms of the types of data we're going to try to, I could say, extract from people. Um, you know, there are people focusing on kind of emotion recognition as a way to improve different experiences, technological experiences. But I, of course, being the skeptic, I'm always skeptical <laughs> leading into these things. So I'm really curious to keep an eye on companies that are doing kind of emotion detection and see where that goes in terms of the next kind of type of data we've been collecting about people would be like your emotional state. There's lots of research into computer-mediated communication that, you know, charts basically all of this. I mean, the research is there. You just have to know where to look for it and, and, you know, put it into play. Maybe we should start educating people at a very early age, like elementary school, about privacy. Is that something... (laughs) You can talk to my my rising fourth grader about it. (laughs) Have you thought about that as, you know, we need to institute this in schools if we're going to... Yeah, there are people, there are definitely people in, in the privacy research field who have worked on kind of curriculum for at least high school students. I agree that it, could, it should go probably at least middle school and maybe the fifth grade, fourth grade, fifth grade level. There are definitely people working on that. You know, how widely distributed that curriculum gets, I think, is, you know, that's the challenge. Um, it'd be nice if California, you know, as a state did something with it rather than it just being a one-off, you know, one teacher in one school being interested in, in that issue. But going back to 
kind of the genetic data piece and the search query piece. You know, one of the things, though, that is really interesting about the genetic data area is the fact that a lot of what you're doing with that is sharing it with other people on the service. You know, whether that's looking for relatives or with 23andMe, you're sharing it. You can share it with the company for their development or for their research purposes. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about the people I talked to who used it was how much they were motivated by that, that sharing, the research sharing, with the expectation that, you know, hey, if my data is used to develop a new drug that can help the world, like, great. I'm a skeptic, so, you know, my kind of counterpoint was, sure, it could be used, but it might be used to develop a drug that then their pharmaceutical partner, you know, charges $50,000 a dose for. Like, it's right. no... Or that you get absolutely nothing for. Well, right, you... and you don't. You don't get anything from it, you know, monetarily. So, I mean, that's right. another kind of interesting area of people willingly contributing their data to a private database for private development with no guarantees that there'll be a public benefit from it. Yeah, I really think we need to innovate that business model and return in some way, monetize this data that is benefiting a few people. I mean, you look at Facebook, 60% of it is owned by Mark Zuckerberg. They don't have that many employees. It needs to be more democratized. Well, I would argue, I was reading um, something recently online that was asking four notable kind of internet theorists about basically what went wrong. And it got me thinking about like, what would I do? What would I have changed about the last 25 years? And I think that Going back to the mid to late 90s, there was a real, you know, the the drumbeat from Silicon Valley, as much as it was an internet business at that point, was very much like, leave us alone. Like, don't regulate us in any way. Like, don't crush the internet. Let it blossom. Let it grow. And, you know, there was pretty much a total hands-off approach with, you know, a couple small exceptions along the way. And I think if I went back in time, the thing I would change is not necessarily regulating, but I think making this expectation that there needed to be a public benefit. And I don't know how I would do that, to be honest, if it's that the companies needed to... Actually, I think maybe not a bad model would be looking back at radio and the development of radio and the fact that you used to have the fairness doctrine and you know public service announcements. And you know there was this explicit like recognition that the radio waves were a public resource and that you know they would lease them to private broadcasters but there had to be some kind of public benefit that they gave back and i think i would have i wish we could have made that more explicit in the development of the internet some people think it, it what went wrong is that it was free oh yeah that if we would have had to pay just a nominal amount of money for the the right to browse or whatever you know we wouldn't be dealing with all the advertising and behavior modification and so on so i was interviewed recently by uh, some undergraduates at stanford and they asked me some pretty challenging questions <laughs> that um, I had to stop and think about too. And you know, part of it was kind of like, why do you like, why do you do this? Why are you interested in this stuff? And given how many bad things feel like they're happening today, it's it's a real challenge to think about why why are we doing this? Like, why am I involved in technology? Why don't I just run away <laughs> and do something else? I think because there have been some real positive changes, despite all of the negative ones. I guess what I, at the end of the day, I feel like it's not worth giving up on it at this point. Not that we even could, but I think that we let kind of industry drive everything for the last 25 years. And I think what you're seeing is a real recognition by people that they have to kind of take this back into their own hands to some extent. 
both in terms of how they're being used um, and their data and just the, the power these large companies have to shape society in a way that I think people are really recoiling from. You know, how we do that, I think, you know, some of the things we've talked about today are like some of the hints at people getting collectively getting together and thinking about what can we do to shift the power balance. But I think it's, it's, it is important to remember that this technology gives you a lot. I mean, there's a lot of things I think if you asked us, would we go back to 1995 and, you know, give up some of the things we, we have now? such as, you know, the, your, your ability to use a map online or a map on a phone. Like, that's a pretty powerful take tool. take a call from your child right? At, at school. Right. I always joke, when I first got a cell phone, the first thing I, I was living in Hawaii, the first thing I did was went to the beach and called people <laughs> back in California going, I'm calling you from the beach. Yeah, it's really, it's not the internet. It's not the technology that's a problem, I think. It's it's the uh, it's the people, <laughs> the, the behavior modification algorithms. Mm-hmm. I think it just we need to change the model. You know, we're not going to get rid of the technology, but make it better. Like you say, I think that's wonderful. It's a good goal. You have a lot of work ahead of you. <laughs> yeah, I can't retire anytime soon. I'd like to have you back on at some point once you've been in this role for quite a while and see what you're thinking then. Yeah. You've been listening to Method to the Madness. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. We'll be back in two weeks.